0: Uh, for those of us who are counting the weeks, it is especially flying by, it seems like. But I said, I'm glad you all have chosen to uh, come worship with us this morning and that we could gather together another week. Um, this morning, we're going to take a look at uh, a short story from Genesis 11. Uh, it's short enough, actually that we'll kind of read it once through, and then talk about it and kind of apply it to our lives, hopefully. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 11. Like I said, we'll kind of read through it off the top and then break it down here in a little bit. <clears throat> It'll be uh, the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. And uh, we'll read together verses 1 uh, through the end of verse 9, that little section. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, "'Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly.' And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, "'Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth.' And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built." And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them all over the face of all the earth. I think this is a particularly interesting little section here in Genesis 11. There's been a lot of suggested meanings for the little story. Uh, I I say suggested because I don't think it's really as certain as some other uh, parts of the Bible. Yes, there's the confusion of languages, uh, but if that is the only message we're to learn from this section, then its placement doesn't really... Makes sense because if you're looking through the Book of Genesis, it's mostly a book about generations, right? We start with Adam, and it tells us the stories of Adam. And Then we're done talking about Adam. It goes into transition mode, right? We're about for two pages. It says these are the sons of Adam, and it lists a bunch of people we've never heard of. And then it gets to somebody like Noah, and we talk about Noah for a little bit, and we see a few stories from Noah's life, and we see, and then there were all the sons of Noah, so and so, we, you know, and it kind of goes on like that. The Tower of Babel was kind of just thrown in there between one of these transition sections, it's not really about Adam or Noah or Abram, who come, Abram who comes after it or Noah who's before it. There's kind of a passing reference to Babel over in chapter 10 if you look through uh, the sons of Noah and the places they went to. But it's not really tied to anybody. There's, not really, there's nobody who experiences firsthand the consequence of the confusion of languages. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to affect Abram or Shem's life, who are the people who are talked about immediately after. The Tower of Babel. It's kind of a, a one off episode, sort of like a bonus scene. So, as I said, there's been several suggested meanings, and of course, the, the more popular, or at least the more simpler one, being it's just a, an explanation or an origin story. That it's a, a long winded way of saying, why do people speak different languages? Because God made it that way. One day God came down, confused everybody's languages. And now we all speak different languages, and God made it that way. It's always a nice little out as a parent if you have young kids, isn't it? I don't. I don't know how many of you have had kids that are Y children. I was a Y child, and I think that was something my parents just started to lean on very heavily. Why is the sky? Because God made it that way. I don't Five or six times, I guess it gets anyway. Um, but if, if the whole point of the story is just to tell us, will people speak different languages because God made it that way? it doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't tie to anything. It definitely is hard to apply to our lives, right? the lesson just don't build tall buildings or else he'll confuse us? It's hard to translate it to, to any application to our life if that's all we're supposed to get out of it. But I think if we dig a little bit deeper, there might be a bit more to it. And uh, I think there's a deeper lesson that we can apply today. <clears throat> if you look at the text, the verse or the... The story really starts, kind of gets exciting in verse 3. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. I know that's not exactly the uh, most grabbing, attention-grabbing hook, but uh, presumably before then, things were stone and mortar, and now they figured out, let's dig out this clay, let's throw it in the oven, and then we get something better than just stone, we get brick. And it says they used bitumen or tar for mortar as wild as it seems to call brick-and-mortar technological advancements, something kind of changed in what they could do. They said, well, now we can build things a little bit taller. We don't just have to have these little lean-tos that are just enough to get by that are like fancy tents or adobe houses. We can build something great. We can build something rather impressive. They say, why don't we try to build something that reaches to the very heavens with this new fancy technology we call brick They learn how to do something different or better. They said, maybe we can build something so high that we reach even the heavens, which is, of course, where God dwells. And they do another thing. They say, maybe if its top is in the heavens, then we can make a name for ourselves. Maybe if we can build this tower to reach where God is, we can make ourselves the center of what we do. We can make a name for ourselves. Because you see, the uh, building tall towers is not really something I don't in particular think offends God. In fact, if, if they were just trying to reach the heavens to dwell with God, we might even say that's a good thing. Dwelling with God is certainly a desirable thing. It's how it was in the garden. We know we talk all the time about wanting to be closer to God. People don't seem very focused on God. In fact, you don't hear the people of uh, Babel mention God once. It's the very inwardly focused. As I said, they said, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves. The focus of the tower is not God at all. It's not the heavens, it's not being closer to God. The focus of the tower and the city is, is man self glorification, self worship. I mentioned the change of sort of the, the technology and the building technology because it's, I think it's worth noting that to ancient people, brick and tar might as well be the wheel, slice bread, or space travel. They couldn't do something before. Now they feel like they can do something. Now they've got the world figured out, right? Now we can build something. that Now we can really rival what God does because we can build tall buildings. And then we can make a name for ourselves. And then the text says... Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. An interesting thing if you're just listing lofty goals for a civilization, right? We want to build something really tall. We want to make our our name very great. And we don't want to go anywhere. Seems like an interesting addition. It's an odd way of putting just... It's an odd way to say just staying put in one place. It's because the last statement, if you... uh, it's easy to miss it, but that last statement is actually a direct shot across the bow at what God has explicitly commanded His people at this point. It might not seem like it to us. It might not be very noticeable. But if you look back at Genesis 1.28 and the creation of man, or even Genesis 8.17 or even Genesis 9.1 after the flood, God explicitly tells people to disperse upon the face of the earth. Multiply and fill the earth. Go out. Go over there. Go different places. He tells them that in the beginning in man. He tells them again after the flood. People say, no. We think we can build a tower as high as God. We think we can make our name the focus of what we're doing. And, you know, I think if we do all that, we can kind of do things how we want. Starting to sound like anything that happens today yet? There's a threefold defiance that happens in verse 4. Let's put ourselves equal with God. Let's make this about us. And let's do what we want. It's pretty simple. It's, not, it's a, a sin of pride that hasn't really gone anywhere in the amount of time that's happened since uh, Genesis 11. The physical laying of the brick and tar tower is not what offends God in the Tower of Babel. It's sin that offends God. Defiance of His law, of His commands. It offended God then, it offends God now. If we took a look around, we would see that we are surrounded by the same defiance towards God. It's rooted in the same things today as it was thousands of years ago. We equate ourselves to God. We seek our own glory instead of God's. We want to do our own will. Instead of God's will. I think if we step back from the, the symbolism of it for a second and just on surface level for a moment, I think it is interesting that we are still trying to reach the heavens. That one of the earliest stories is about man trying to build a tower as, as high as we can. And we, we still do the same thing today. You constantly see people trying to build the tallest tower, the biggest tower, the, the most populous area, or the biggest thing they can I think the last three tall buildings that have built were each like 10 feet higher than the last. Like if the record was 950 feet, they were like, well, I'm going to build one 952 feet. we have got to have the tallest building. And of course, we're still trying to get to the heavens. And don't worry, this isn't a a message against space travel. I think it's interesting that we are still trying to think ourselves or work ourselves into the heavens kind of in in some way or another. Sometimes I wonder if technological development, medical advancements, if if these kind of things haven't given some of us in society the idea that we don't need God. My life is not under any imminent threat. The country is not at war. I have food. I don't need manna from heaven. We understand things now. God is this old-fashioned idea. For people who just don't, they don't, they don't understand the world we do. We don't need God. I think people feel like they have worked themselves out of needing God today's day and age in many ways. Just as ancient people desired to build a tower to make themselves equal with God, the latest can, the latest Generation can say we've been to the heavens and God is not up there. As I said, I think in many ways we are trying to literally and figuratively reach the heavens to make ourselves equal with God, to work ourselves out of needing God, or so we think. To think of ourselves equal as God is still the offensive, prideful, sinful idea it was in Genesis 11. If you remember that second defiance I mentioned from verse 4. To make a name for ourselves. We live in the golden age of self-glorification, don't we? I think more than any time in history, not that I've been around for very much of it, I guess. But I think more than any time in history, self-glorification is not just allowed, but it's really encouraged. Just think about it uh, again. Just, just look at it from surface level you can go to any major city in the world and people are trying to build buildings as high as they can to put literally to put their name on top of it usually in big glowing letters you got to think pretty highly of yourself to do something like that (laughs) don't you you got to think you're pretty important to be worthy of all that it's not even getting into self-glorification that happens online 70 90 percent of what social media is isn't it somewhere or another on any platform, you can't scroll five seconds without seeing a post about how to love or care for yourself better. And I'm sure it has good intentions. I'm not advocating for anybody to hate themselves. Please don't misunderstand me. But personally, when I look at society, I think we've gotten pretty good at loving ourselves. <laughs> Seems like we've got the caring about ourselves first thing kind of down, honestly. I'd be encouraged to see a bit more posts about other love and other care. How to make somebody else feel good and feel better. Philippians 2 3 says, Do nothing from self ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think the interests of others is something that, especially in recent times, has kind of gotten lost when it comes to what it means to be a Christian or to be Christ-like. I think if we stepped back, we'd be amazed at how much self-glorification, how much self-worship, how much out-and-out idolatry we've just gotten used to seeing everywhere. We're so used to it that we don't see it anymore. In driving, they call that highway hypnosis, where you're so used to going 80 miles an hour, you don't even see it moving anymore. We have highway hypnosis to the self-glorification that happens in the world. We're so used to seeing, accepting, and encouraging it that we don't, even, we don't even see it as sin anymore. We're numb to it. But you know, almost every story in the Old Testament, from Genesis through Exodus, through all the major and the minor prophets, almost every story in some way or another goes back to idolatry. Warning against idols, against idols making your own, against foreign idols, against other idols. Because if we if we went back to the end of verse four, where I said that third defiance, where they seek their own will, you don't really get to defiance of God's law and seeking your own will without at least some form of idolatry in the middle. Without at least some form of equating yourself on level of God. If you're worshiping God, if you're seeking God, if you're fixed on God, it never crosses your mind to just fly in the face of what God commands you. The people here at Babel were, say, building some sort of temple, maybe. Maybe. They were just glorifying God and not building anything. I don't don't think it ever occurs to them to say, you know, God said to go and disperse about the earth. And even though we love and we're glorifying him, we're just going to not do that. But if someone comes along and starts saying, well, what if this whole thing's really just about what you want? You can take care of yourself. You can provide for yourself. You don't need God. Why don't you make this about you? It doesn't need to be about God. Then it's open season. Then we can do whatever we want when we don't need God. We get to idolatry when we get distracted from the goal. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We are all directly, indirectly, given a goal and when your eyes are on that goal you'll be amazed at how little you worry about your own name about building a name for yourself about worrying about your own reputation as Eli read for us this morning seek first the kingdom you can't selfishly obey the great commission you know that? You can't, you can't selfishly get closer to God. It just doesn't happen. You're, you're never going to get closer to God acting purely in self-interest. Because God's commands at their heart about loving others. They're outward focused. Last week, a major talking point of our study last week was about servanthood. And the challenge to be servants. But the people at Babel got Distracted. They were not mission-focused. They were not mission-minded. They let someone else set their goal. They let someone else give them a mission. Rather than go into all the nations, they said, reach the heavens. Rather than glorify God, they said, let's make this about ourselves. Rather than doing God's will, something as simple as disperse upon the face of the earth, they said, why don't we just stay here for a while? things seem pretty good here I like it here I mentioned that if it's just about confusing of the languages it doesn't really make sense in terms of how it fits between Genesis 10 and the rest of Genesis 11 and we've been kind of focusing on verse 4 and 5 but towards the end it mentions about three different times in verse 7, 8, and 9 that after that the Lord dispersed them on the face of the earth He confused their language and dispersed them. Therefore it was called Babel, because he confused them. And from there, he dispersed them. It's not just a story about a confusion of languages. It's a story about God giving people a command. Them defying it. Guess whose will was ultimately done? And see, if we see the people were dispersed, and that is the focus of 11 and the the Tower of Babel, then it makes sense. It lines up with what happens in 12 and what happens with Abram and all that a little bit later. The narrative makes a little more sense. And now we're starting to see something that we can kind of apply to our lives a little bit better. It's not just the dispersal in and of itself, but there was a command There was a command and there was defiance of that command. But ultimately, after judgment, we might say, after punishment, wrath, ultimately there was obedience. God's will will be done. I think as my dad used to say, the bus is leaving the station. You on it, you off. Don't let someone else set your goal. Don't let someone else distract from your mission. In the prophets, in Ezekiel, Isaiah, uh, when God is speaking, he uses this phrase over and over again when he's speaking to the prophets. And he says, for my name's sake. He says, I'm going to redeem Israel for my name's sake. I'm going to save you from these pestilences and destroy Babylon for my great name's sake. He uses this phrase a lot when God is speaking. Because he is constantly reminding them that what they're doing what is happening, what's in front of them, what's behind them, what's, what's going on in their lives. It is constantly for His glorification. I think we could be reminded about that a little bit more in our own lives. So we close, I've just got a few questions for us today from our study of Genesis 11. We're all building something. It might not be a tower. Maybe you use an old school stone instead of brick and tar. We're all building something. What are you building? Are you building it for you or for God? There's a name on the outside of your building. Is the name on the outside of your building your name? It's a God's name. When you think about the direction you go in your life and the will you are obeying, is it your will or is it God's will? They're really all the same question, right? Who's in control of your life? If the answer is not God, then simply it needs to be. You need to put God back in the driver's seat. You need to...